Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I think if you're going to be a notable celebrity that, you know, instinctually you do that to be loved by people. And Spenny and I are totally different. He won't sign an autograph. Anybody walks up to him, he's like head down, barrels pass him. Uh, Any person that sees me, I give him an autograph. I give him a selfie, like whatever the fuck they want. And once I was in the elevator with Julie Andrews on the phone with my mom and my mom, like Julie Andrews is fucking, you know, you know, Allah. To my fucking mom and I go oh Miss Andrews just say hi to my mom she says no 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 I don't do that and I was basically you know what fuck you like why the fuck did you get into the business that you just can't like she's staying in a hotel room next to me like like you know isn't this why you're in the business just for like three seconds just to say hi to, to some 80 year old Jewish lady and make her life complete like fuck you Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Very excited from Montreal with Kenny Hotz. And wow, this is going to be a great episode. I feel it. I need to give you the proper introduction. So please sit back, recline, and hopefully you won't slip into a coma. So here we go, everybody, because this is a long one and I want to get it all in because this guy, we're going to have a fun time and it's going to be very, very inspiring. Kenny Hotz is a Canadian comedian, writer, director, and actor, and was born in Toronto, Canada. He showed promise in entertainment from a young age, directing a film at camp that won an award from producer-director Henry Winkler at age seven. Upon graduating high school, he began to pursue documentary filmmaking and photography covering subjects including Auschwitz, Dachau, Waco, Texas aftermath and was the only registered Canadian photojournalist to cover the Gulf War. He graduated the media arts program at Ryerson Polytechnical Institute with his career in documentary, photo, and video journalism already in motion, having had his works collected in the National Archives and earning an award for best student photo for a photograph entitled Behind the Mask. Upon graduation, he continued his pursuit of photography, and in 1994, he directed his first 
documentary short with his friend from childhood spencer rice aka spenny the short film entitled it don't cost nothing to say good morning covered the life and death of a homeless man and went on to win multiple awards and international film festivals In 1996, Kenny directed his first feature film, again with collaborator Spencer Rice. The documentary, Pitch, starred the two as emerging young film directors trying to pitch a film to various celebrities at the Canadian Film Festival. The film won an award for Best Canadian Documentary at the Hot Docs Canadian International Film Festival. In 2004, Hot's mockumentary, The Papal Chase, premiered in Canada, covering Hot's desperate attempt to meet the Pope. The film won great critical acclaim, including the Philip Barsos Award for Best Canadian Feature Film. In 2003, Hots broke into the American mainstream with the award-winning television show Kenny vs. Spenny, based on a semi-fictional game show format between contestants Kenny Hots and Spencer Rice. The show went on to great success and critical acclaim, running for 90 episodes. Ending in 2010, the television show was nominated for the Gemini Award in 2005, 2006, and 2008. The Canadian Comedy Award in 2010-11 and was nominated for the Rose Dior for Best International Comedy Series. The Kenny vs. Spenny format was rebroadcast and licensed to over 25 countries and as such is the largest selling Canadian program in history. And McLean's Magazine ranked the show number eight in its list of best Canadian programs of the 21st century. While Kenny vs. Spenny was on the air, Hotz maintained his journalistic pursuits, and in 2006, he won an award for Best Fiction Article from Vice Magazine. In addition, in 2008, he created the television program Testies on the FX network. As such, he is the only Canadian artist to have two television programs running concurrently on major networks, which got them both canceled. In 2011, he starred in and produced the television series Kenny Hotz, Triumph of Will. He's had two cameos in the film Zack and Miri Make a Porno and Degrassi Takes Manhattan. As of 2014, he and his partner Spencer Rice could be seen taking their hit show Kenny vs. Spenny live on the road for an international tour which encompassed over a hundred dates. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest. I'm very, very excited about it. Kenny Hotz. Thank you. Tell me the first time somebody wrote you a check And after they wrote you the check, they had the meeting and they said, this is great. We're really excited. Listen, this one part of the show, I think it should be this way. And we'd really appreciate it if you did this or that. Could you tell us about that story and what happened? Well, there were lots of times like that. We we went from, from... We were on CBC where we had kind of a bunch of soccer moms that had no idea what was going on. Uh... We were just delivering them shows, and I was cracking jokes about, you know, eating out, you know, 12-year-old girls, and they didn't even get it. Like, they, you know, the shows would air, and my jokes were so, you know, twisted and, and Dadaist that, you know, I'd get the, you know, people would call up, these old ladies would freak and go, you just cracked a, a 
you know, an insane sex joke. And, and we just kind of went over our, our audience's heads. And so a lot of like stuff like that happened because nobody really understood the genre or what we were doing when we were, when we started it, I see it as the first reality sitcom. The only thing on TV like that was the Osbournes. We were pitching the show in LA long before it went to Canada and they're, they're going, is it a mockumentary? Cause that was the only thing people could understand. And I was like, no, it's like a, a comedy documentary. It's more like a cockumentary and you know, starring two guys. Um, but then we went to the first us pickup we got was GSN game show network. Cause the president's kid found us online and he goes to me, he goes, you said fuck like 300 times in one episode. Can you, you know, can you please just stop saying fuck so much? And, you know, I felt bad because I, I was like, you know what? I just thought that the second I conform to any, anything in any way, and I'm not myself, it, people are going to smell it. It's going to come through the screen and, 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 you know, people wanted me to wear makeup. I looked like a fucking panda with AIDS. You know what I mean? It's pretty, he would always cake his face and put a spatula of fucking makeup on his face. And, you know, I looked like death and I thought, you know what? Somebody's going to be changing the channel and they're going to see the only person on TV that doesn't give a fuck, that doesn't have makeup and, and they're going to, you know, you know, enjoy the believability and the originality of that and and i just wanted to be real and i think so you know, what did you say to him in the meeting i said fuck off you know here take no honestly what did you say i'm sorry i'll totally take care of it because that's what you say but then you just keep delivering shows with fucking okay well, because it is a business no this is important you here. have to kind of you know when somebody tells you something Listen, you're going selling a show to executives. They say, do this. You go, oh, my God, that's a great idea. I love that totally. And they go, well, why didn't you do it? And I said, well, we tried it and it didn't work. Like, you know, you have to, you know, I'm not too cool for the cash. You know, Willie Nelson says never be too cool for the cash. But you have to play the game. You know what I mean? You 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 have to play the game. It doesn't mean you have to abide by the rules at the end of it. But, it, you know, when you're delivering a master right before an air date, you just deliver the show you want. And you know what? And I think tons of people, especially in Canada, literally ruin their careers because they're listening to executives and not going with their instincts. You know, if if you're if you get a shot to do a show, it is fucking out of control. Like it is so fucking hard. You could be a billionaire. Like you could do hundreds of episodes if you if you do it right or you do something that the audience picks up on or it migrates to a demographic or whatever. But the second you start, you know, listening to fucking idiots, you're fucked. And and so there's been a bunch of shows in Canada that suck and these comedians get them and they're terrible. And I bump in and I go, what happened to your show? It fucking sucked. They go, well, the executives wanted this. And it's like, you know, fuck it. Look at, you know, Kaufman, Rickles, these guys are, you know, they, they're they're originals and no one would kind of stop them. Rickles was on the roast, you know, douching Reagan and, and uh, you know, Frank and Hope. Like, it's like, you know, that's, he was true to his, to his persona and that, and, and to his art. And that's, you can, like, I really think that Kenny versus Benny kind of transmitted to the audience you know, the reality and, and the truth behind just these two shitty idiots who are doing something that makes no sense for no reason. But we were so, you know, focused on on what we were doing that it became this, you know, ridiculous, stupid thing that women ended up loving. Like women love Kenny versus Benny. I never thought they would, but they loved it because 
it shows that women are smarter than men. You know, we, we, we're too, you know, narcissistic, egomaniacal fucking idiots that portray the two male psyche. One, you know, a super hot, I don't give a shit, cool, uh, bad boy. And then the anal, you know, neurotic, paranoid, angry, you know, um, moralist who was Spenny so girls could kind of pick which which guy they liked you know the wounded puppy that they want to save which is Spenny or the bad guy that'll fuck the living shit out of them for 10 seconds <laughs> <laughs> I have a show idea that I want to produce with you together Sh- probably- Schindler's Fist that <laughs> you probably thought of about 700 times and I'm not the first yeah why don't we produce the female version of Kenny versus it's done Spenny? it's been done where in, in well we we've we've had like a f- formats all over the world so we had Andriana versus Marianne but I or mean something. in the United States they did we did the Dutch ones I don't know if you know I we did a lot of formats and I you know I went to Bogota and London London England but and there's tried never to, been one in the United States have you pitched in the United States? well we've been in the United States no I know that but I'm talking about you, the, the you, woman's you, version you know what happened is that Comedy Central did stole our fucking show did the exact same copy with Charlie Murphy and with our opening titles and uh well, why didn't you sue them uh, well, I didn't. Matt Stone saw it and said, what the fuck are you doing? You guys are fucking crazy. Kenny's going to sue the shit out of you. And he stopped it. But I, I was so, I couldn't believe they had the balls to do that. So they did a pilot. And then you drank their liquor last night at the party. Actually, I didn't go to the party. I'm not going to parties. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm realizing now that. You mean you look like this without going to parties? Yeah, this is, this is me looking good. Girls like the Vincent Gallo. Dark eyebrows. <laughs> what shit. happened to Vincent Gallo? I used to love that guy. I don't know. Yeah. Holy shit, that's a great reference. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, girl, girls love dark circles. Before you got married, were you good with the ladies? Uh, I never really was. Well, I went to Hebrew school for like the first ten years of my life, like day school. I didn't. So know you like f- women with wigs? I didn't know what a fucking chick was until I got to grade eight, and then you know the hottest girl in the school dated me and broke up with me because I wouldn't finger her. I was too scared. I learned quickly that you know uh, what to do with girls with your fingers, with my fingers, <laughs> my thumb. And big toe. Can we back up to the girl in eighth grade? I just want to know. Yeah. Just take us back to how the conversation goes where she says, will you please use your finger? I just want to know. Back up five minutes and take me through the conversation. Uh, Just where are you? Are you wearing clothes? Are you sitting in a car? You're 13 years old. The day before, I, I just get to this school. Forest Hill. It was like 90210. It's like the richest fucking school in Forest Hill in Toronto. And, uh, you know, Lauren Michaels went there. Drake went there. Howard Shore went there, the famous composer. You definitely dropped more names than Oscar Schindler. Yeah. He's got a lot of names. See, um, two Schindler jokes in one that's thing. That's true. Um, and so her friend walks up to me and she goes, do you like that girl? And she was like putting stuff in her locker because she liked me. And I said, well, I'd like her if she shaved her armpits. This was, I didn't even know this. <laughs> and then the girl shaved her armpits that night. And then uh, we hooked up and- What do you mean you hooked up? Well, we, we just started making out and stuff. And uh, supposedly later on, uh, she ended up breaking up with me because I wouldn't do anything with her. But I, I didn't. I, I had no idea that this girl. I have. A, I had a really hard time thinking that like a girl wanted to have sex with me. Like even now, you know, I, if I have sex with my wife, it's like I can't believe like you're letting me do this to you. It's just. It's so. 
it's so brutal that you would let me do this to you. It's just weird to me. It created a beautiful child. It did. It created a beautiful child. I've created a lot of beautiful childs. I just didn't keep any of them. Do you know of all of them? No, no, but every year on Father's Day, I go to the city dump and wave at it and throw bags of Jolly Ranchers into it. Sorry. <laughs> Too soon? Too soon. <laughs> so, you mind taking me way back to the beginning of your family and where you grew up and what kind of environment it was, and then what was the first inspiration to be able to do things that were considered entertainment? I, uh, my, my family's like... Um, well, they got chased out of, you know, thank God for the pogroms. Every Jew would be dead if it wasn't for those shitty Russians that raped us all in, you know, the early 1900s. My grandfather was lined up with a bunch of Jews in like 1910 or something. They were all shot. He blew his ear off and he lied down in a pit pretending he was dead. And he's like, fuck this shit. I'm going to Hamilton, Ontario. Went to Hamilton. They started a scrap metal business. And so I and I come from a morbidly obese family. So, so define morbidly obese oh, my, versus I, my, obese. I my uncle AB looked like that fucking purple chick from Willy Wonka, you know, <laughs> like he, he was so fucking big. He, and he was such a, he was such a comedy guy. He's, he, he, he touted himself in his cards as Canada's largest scrap dealer because he was, he used to go to the scrap dealing conventions. He was the fattest guy there. So all the signs on Hudson Sons and Hamilton said Canada's largest scrap dealer. And it was just because he was fat. You know, like he used that. But you're not big. No, I'm not big, thank God. Are your parents big? Um, no, my dad was basically one of the only skinny Hotzes. And, um, but you know, the thing is he, you know, worked out every day and, and, you know, died on the handball court at 72 and his fat brothers who kept salamis in their pockets, uh, lived an extra 20, 30 years. So now it's like, fuck working out. You know why, you know, he taught me so many lessons about life. But back to the, you don't want to work out and you see, oh, no, so your wife finds out. you very yeah, I'm going to work out and die. That's what my dad taught me. So because your dad died working out. You're not going to work out. Correct. Do you think if your dad were looking down and talking to you, he'd say, what the fuck are you talking about? Work out. Or would he say, no, just do whatever you want. Yeah, I'd say, I can't believe I was I, I, I was working out. I've totally fucked up. I remember Dennis Leary, one of his first bits was he used to smoke four cigarettes and blow it out and say, I love the fucking smoke. People are always saying, why do you smoke? Why do you smoke? Why do you exercise? He said, you know, Jim Fix, you know how he died? The guy who wrote all the books? He died jogging. You know who <laughs> yeah. discovered him? Two smokers. <laughs> oh, look, it's Jim Fix. <laughs> yeah. But your dad would tell you to keep working out. So why are you not working out? Uh, I don't think he would tell me to work out. You know, the reality is I, I grew up with a, the nicest, sweetest family. They were so supportive of me that, you know, I became kind of a comedian because my family was so like my family was just kind of like a salesman would come to the door with a fucking vacuum cleaner and they'd be like, come in. And I would just slam the door on him. You know, I was kind of like the black sheep, but they were so happy that I would slam the door on this shitty guy selling, you know, filet mignons wrapped in bacon. I'd come home and I'm signing a check. We were poor signing a check for, you know, 20, 
you know, uh, filet mignons wrapped in bacon. Like, we're fucking Jewish. And I just rip up her check and, and slam the door. So so I hated seeing my family get a, taken advantage of because my dad was so nice. And I kind of started this, you know, it kind of started this whole kind of Getty versus Spenny thing years ago. And I also had an older brother that used to beat the shit out of me all the time. How much older was he than you? Three years older. So I, my brother and his friends, we would come back from Hebrew school and they would come and they would beat the living shit out of me. One day I went and I grabbed a bunch of steak knives and I started whipping the steak knives at them and they stopped and I learned, oh my God, if you do something crazier than they do, like it actually will stop you from being abused. And so I kind of used my quick wit or whatever to, cause there was a lot of bullying back then. Like, you know, you're some shitty kid in a, in a fucking school. Uh, people like you, you know, it's you, it, it, like a, a playground's like a prison, you know, you, you have to own your shit or you will, you will get totally fucking abused. So Chris Titus once told me the philosophy of his dad was say, son, listen, if somebody beats you up in the schoolyard, you need to go back there the next day and you need to walk right up to that guy and beat you up. And you need to punch him as hard as you can in the face. And you're going to get the shit kicked out of you again, but then he will never bother you after that. Yeah. And that yeah. was your philosophy. Yeah. And and also you have to be funny, like to survive. So, so you got great. your sense of humor by diffusing people who wanted to beat the shit out of you. And by, tr- and by helping my family and by, you know trying to be cool and you know all that you thought the old nazis went to argentina they all went to my fucking hebrew school and taught us like the stupidest shit ever like you ever want to turn your kid off of judaism send him to fucking hebrew school where you got to do homework on noah's ark they're trying to convince me adam and eve like a talking snake started the world i was like are you guys fucking retarded <laughs> we all know xenu from scientology started the world <laughs> So you're dealing weed. That was your first job. Weed, hash, yeah. I called it prohibited commodities brokering. And I made a lot of money. So even though my first movie that I ever worked on was half-baked, believe it or not, I don't have a clear understanding, as probably most of our audience don't, on the business of drug dealing. So tell us, firstly, as a teenager, who do you buy from first? Well, I'll tell you, there's, there's... Specific rules to drug dealing. Okay, could you One, go over them with us? Yes. First, you must ha- constantly have drugs. That's the important thing. So it's like someone knows that they can always go to you and get drugs even if there's a drought or anything. Secondly, you can never, ever rip anybody off. You can charge them way more than they're supposed to pay. I sold a gram of hash once in grade nine for 50 bucks. Like that's how good I was. I was like a master of, of selling drugs. And, but you could never ever undercut anybody. Like you could never rip anybody off. You could never give them less than weight. So if I somebody bought an ounce of weed, I give them an ounce of weed. Like so, when they go home and weigh, it's not twenty seven grams or, or like you can you can really overcharge anybody because you cannot. What I used to say is, look, I, this is it. I only have an ounce. Like I can't sell it to you. And and because I grew up with a whole bunch of rich Jews, the power of no. Yeah. And uh, so that was my thing. They knew uh, Kenny was expensive, but he always had the best drugs and he'll never rip you off. 
but I didn't like doing it. I didn't want to do it as, you know, I came from a really poor family, like, you know, and, and, you know, we lost our house in the seventies and then lived in public housing. Like it was shitty. But you're a teenager and your parents are poor, but there's a decision to sell drugs and they have to see somebody who's doing it. How did it come about? And then how did the person who you saw was doing it? Why would they want you to sell drugs too when they're making money? How did you get into it initially the first thing? How do you get into drug dealing when you have no knowledge of anything? Um, well, you, you're spending money. Which is the, on your own drugs. Yeah, you're spending money on your own drugs, which is really. So you want to you want to do everything in your power to pay as little as possible for the drugs that you're doing. God, and you're buying them from a specific person. Yeah, hey, of course you're buying them from specific people, and then, you know, I you know I really think people you know as a baby are the the pers personality that they are for the rest of their lives, unless they get diddled or get hit in the head in a car accident, you know. But you know, so I think. You know, I was a very likable diplomatic guy and people like me and I was never an asshole to anybody. So I ended up meeting a lot of people. And, you know, I met people who had, you know, access to weed. And so luckily, because people like me, they wanted to hang out with me and I went to parties and house parties. I, I hooked up with people who could get me weed. And a lot of people aren't like that. They can't, you know, kind of just have access to be trusted like that. Now... Where did you have the money to buy the weed if your parents were poor? Uh, you can always just say, look, just give me an ounce. I'll pay you back. Or, you know, so and eventually you kind of stockpile and you have cash like that. And it's easy. The drug dealers want to sell their drugs. But don't they realize that you've taken their drugs and now you're competing with them? No, no, because they, they don't have access to the demographic. Nobody had access to this school's, you know, crowd. My brother was three years older, so all of his friends and all of my friends, you know, they just wanted weed. They're all, you know, this is like, you know, guys who are into Zeppelin and Springsteen and Deep Purple. So you buy a, an ounce of weed for, let's say, at the time. Let's say it's 200. After you break it all up and sell it in little compartments or whatever, yeah. what do you sell it for? 300, 350, maybe 400. So you make double the money. 200 or bucks. Like, how the fuck? You know, and I was a busboy. Listen, I worked in the shittiest fucking places. I worked in at the exhibition, like, you know, at the, I was a carny, like 13 years old, working in the dart, you know, working balloon darts and, uh, and uh, one day some guy goes, are you a Jew? And I go, yeah, and they fired me. And so I rip my shirt, I go in the back, I rip my shirt, go into the cashier, grab all their money, and I call a cop over and he say, just call me a Jew and tried to beat me up. And I must have taken four, 500 bucks out of the cash. I said, fuck you. And I walked away and they didn't do anything. So, wow. you know, it's just like, you know, it's just, I always I had some street street sense back then, which is really lucky, and we kind of had to fend. We always kind of had to fend for ourselves. Okay, so you're selling drugs. You're probably making at least a thousand a week. Then. Oh God, no, no. You know, you just told me you get two hundred for each. Yeah, day. but you know, it wasn't like that. You know, eventually I had like once I had like ten kilos of like Manali hash in my house, and my friends who were drug dealers, I kind of stopped drug dealing, and then because I lived on some massive ravine, I was storing their drugs for them. So when they were getting busted, all of their shit was at my house. I lived on some. You know, ten thousand foot ravine, and in it, I built a 
a box and I put dirt over it and, you know, it was under a tree somewhere that no one would know. And then I used to go into my backyard and, and open it and pull out a kilo of hash for them. It shit got crazy. Hey, everybody. I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. What's the most money you've ever made in one transaction? Uh, it's so long. It's 35 years ago. Um, I, you know, I was I was always paranoid and I just had cash so I could go have fun. I never really wanted to, like, I was always so scared of the cops and, like, prison and all of that stuff. I never, I never really did anything that would jeopardize my, you know, my, um, you know, life. And was your entry to meeting girls the fact that you had the drugs and you'd be like hey i got a joint you want to go smoke one well my house my mom was from a kibbutz so she loved people around her and so my house was like a kibbutz like we always had people over like i kind of started in the biz because there was a library that had ten thousand films so me and my friend broke into the school one night 13 years old and i stole like this bell and howell movie projector and then they had the movies on reel to reel on reel to reel. So I went into the libraries because I was a filmo and I like every weekend I would get like the most insane movies like Eisenstein's and and, uh, you know, Renoir's and all these incredible fucking movies. And I'd have movie nights in my basement where everyone would just go and smoke hash and we just watch all these insane movies and shorts like Polanski shorts and and um, Linez and all these like crazy like Bunuel and Dally's and and like and how old were you at this time? 13, 13, 14, 15. 13 and yeah. you had that kind of sense of yeah yeah and so uh, my 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 basement was like a cinema where all the uh, all the friends would come and, and now 13 year old boys and girls 14, would be 14. interested in these movies yeah because there was three channels back then and there was nothing to do and you know you're you're you know some times you were putting on like i was getting bakshi's like ralph bakshi movies on film you know heavy traffic and fritz the cad and or um you know for those of you who don't know, Fritz the Cat was the first X-rated animated movie yeah. in history. I was in the Toronto Public Library, you know, and uh, yeah, it was really, it was, but it, it, you know, totally inspired me to go into the biz and do that stuff just because I was like such a fucking film addict. All right. So what's the next step for you in becoming a person who creates, writes, and puts together on film or tape? So what, what happened was my brother, older brother, three years older, was the most incredible artist. Like he was so 
fucking good. He would, you know, we had comic books as kids and we had a massive comic book collection and he would draw like these fucking, you know, Michelangelo like hands and and do like the coolest, like the coolest art and robots and superheroes and shit. And I couldn't fucking draw. I couldn't draw worth shit. And it always made me so mad that he was such an incredible artist. Like it was, it was just, it would blow my fucking mind that I just, I picked up a camera for my, when I got my bar mitzvah cash, I bought a camera, a Canon AE1, and I just started taking pictures. So I felt like I could create art. My parents asked me, do you want a bar mitzvah? And I was like, uh, and they go, you, you know, you'll make a couple grand off the fan. Cha-ching. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I, I remember my, my bar mitzvah. I remember one passage. Let's see if you can sing one of your passages of what your bar mitzvah. Oh, fuck. I'll start. Well, I speak. He- I kind of speak Hebrew because my mom's Israeli. Got it. So but, I'll start the one I remember. Yeah. Let's see if I can get the cadence down. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech olam Asher b'charbanu mikol amim Venatan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai No seichol rarach The ancient tongue of Jesus I've never done that before Singing my bar mitzvah Well you know what the good, the good thing is like We had this This cantor that taught us all The guy was like 117 <laughs> Cantor Soberman We used to call him Cantor not Soberman <laughs> The great thing about the Jewish race is you never get molested by rabbis. There's only one thing. There's two. They're too lazy to molest you. (laughs) They're just there's no money in it. You know what I mean? So fuck it. You know, that's a great thing. Why? Diddled by a a priest. (laughs) Why don't you think rabbis diddle people? Like I said, there's no money in it. How is there money in diddling people? There isn't. That's why they didn't do it. No, but what's the? Where's their money in the priest? Oh, well, I, I they're not Jews. Okay, they don't care I'm about sorry, the money. I'm not even thinking. Yeah. <laughs> there's no money. Yeah. I'm sorry, I lost you on yeah, that see, one. Yeah, yeah, no, I don't know. Listen, it was uh, everyone. <laughs> no. I don't want this to be a Jew thing, but you know, even being here in Montreal, where everyone's a fucking anti-Semite, is so brutal. Now I don't think the world knows that Montreal is anti-Semitic. Well, everyone's anti-Semitic. We are, we're like, the problem is nobody even realizes how much people hate the Jews. It's only the Jews realize like how much everybody hates us. Everybody thinks like, we're fucking paranoid, neurotic, you know, freaks. I think sometimes you know when you're in a population that has some issues when your own people hate your own people. Well, listen, those Hasidic Jews look like fucking vampires like they are like they're like these conniving like like with the the greasy hair and the hats and the the, the frills off their head they they're fucking freaks they look like fucking freaks no wonder people hate us <laughs> uh, all we want to do is cure fucking cancer and make people laugh you know what i mean not in that order. Yeah, but at least ISIS is around now. So hopefully everybody realizes, oh, this is what the Jews have been going through for 6,000 years. Now they're cutting off each other's heads and Christian heads. So finally someone's chopping off Christian heads, you know. I hope we. I hope the Israelis actually started ISIS. That would be the coolest thing ever. <laughs> I would love that. I would love to know that we're responsible for everybody else realizing how shitty radical Islam is. But any radical Jew, any radical religion are fucking idiots, you know. So when you think of the Muslim religion, 
Is it similar to Judaism where the Muslims look at other Muslims and say, oh, God, these people are ruining it for all of us. We're just trying to be here and those people, look at these extreme people are doing this. I'm just trying to have a life here. Well, the difference between the Muslims and the Jews is like in, in Jews, the women wear the pants in all the families. Like Women are in control of everything. The Muslims, they, you know, they don't even give the wife a driver's license. The Jews are like, you drive, <laughs> you know, because it's a free chauffeur. Like we just like not the one you blow. The, yeah. Uh, okay. Yeah. But uh, so you know, it's who you know in the Israeli army, women are teach everybody how to fight. Uh, I just think you know who you for, who you're gonna be for, a place where women are treated like totally respected as equals and basically you know run the show, or a, a religion where women are treated like total shit. Now it could be argued based on your persona that if I were to ask you in a soundproof booth, are women equal to you, you would say no. No, they're smarter. I think they're better. I originally, starting up in my life, I thought women were... I thought women were the fucked up ones, but now being a guy, like Kenny versus Spenny proved to me that men are the fucked up one. And that's why I don't think a women could do Kenny versus Spenny. I think they'd be sitting there going, no, you know what? I won the last one. You win this one. And and the guys are like we like we're doing we were doing shit that is so stupid that made no sense that Spenny thought was important and I didn't to me Kenny versus Spenny is I don't care versus I care that's it is that he cared about something that was totally meaningless and I did I didn't like I did I cared about humiliating him and crushing him <laughs> and making myself lovable you know because I'm a narcissist I want people to love me so people love me when. I when Spenny is angry and mad. So I just pushed his buttons. I made him as mad because conflict is comedy. So to have a guy that I could make as conflicted as possible, that was my job. That was my only job in Kenny versus Spenny is to make him as funny as possible. Uh, okay, well, let's keep going here. So you're doing the film festivals. What's the first thing you do? that you shoot, that you produce, that you direct, that you star in. My parents sent my brother and I to film camp, to movie camp mm -hmm. in Toronto. It was a national film board camp. I was six years old. Mm -hmm. So I made my first movie when I was six and they put us into groups with all these people and I instantly became like, you know, the director. You know, I was like, like Riefenstahl just going, you do this, you do that. And so I made all these kids make a movie called, uh, what was it called? It's like two hots or something for you. And I, it was, it was just like, I just controlled them all and made them do it. And that's kind of how it started. But when we were doing film festivals, we, I, we did another short about this homeless foul mouthed dwarf named Shorty Gordy in Toronto. And he died during the movie, um, he got hit by a car. And I had to back over him three times to do it, but what an ending. <laughs> and uh, so that went to like Uberhausen and all these weird film festivals, which was great. And we got a little taste of it. And then we made a movie called Hitch, which was about Spenny and I trying to sell a script. And, you know, we were the first guys to ever go to a film festival. And, you know, I'm trying to make we're, we have a legitimate script that we're trying to sell. And I'm running up to Al Pacino and fucking Roger Ebert and all of these people. And it's on YouTube. It's called Pitch. And like genuinely trying to sell this fucking script. So it got really big. And, and we had a gala in Toronto and, and journalists were saying that there's more stars in this movie 
by not being able to make it than there would have been if I ever made the movie. But then, you know, I cornered Neil Simon in a parking lot in L.A. and he's in the movie. And he, he I was like, Mr. Simon, please. We're such big fans. Like, you know, um, this is a heartbreak kids like our favorite fucking movie. Like, please, uh, can we interview? And he goes, no, no, no. He goes. I don't do that. And I go, please, Mr. Simon. Like, I, for 10, Spenny was going, come on, let's go, let's go. I go, Mr. Simon, we're two Jews from Toronto. You have to help us. And he goes, oh, fuck, okay, follow me home. He invites us into his house and we get there and, 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 Oh, we tell him what we're doing, and he goes, "What you wrote a mob co- the, the script that we're trying to sell him pitch is a mob comedy, of you know the uh, Scorsese esque mob comedy." And he says, "What the fuck are you writing a mob comedy for? Like, write what you know, do what you know." And that kind of always stuck with me. And that's what Kenny versus Spenny is. And that goes back to the whole thing about go with your instincts, just fucking like a laser, be the most true to yourself as you possibly can. And that originality and uniqueness and voice, the only voice that you have, you have to fucking use it and don't listen to any other shitty people. And if you get a career out of it, great. If you don't, you know, you didn't suck anybody's dick and you didn't, you know, you didn't ruin your fucking life. So, so I, ever since I kind of heard, you know, Neil, Neil, tell me that, that's when I really was like, oh, okay, I'm just going to do whatever the fuck I want. And I can always go sell drugs if it doesn't work. But the thing also that I should point out that is fascinating about the two of you when you're in front of Neil Simon, and this is so great. And what an amazing lesson for the audience. One of you is saying, Mr. Simon, please, please, I know you've said no, but please. And each objection that he has, you're trying to figure out another angle. In the sales business, normally five objections, and your boss will tell you, just walk away, just say, thank you so much, we understand you're not interested. You go into a health spa or a gym, like Equinox, you go in, the salesperson's like, will that be cash, check, or charge? Eh, I don't have any of those on me. Oh, that's okay, well, just leave your wallet here, you can go get it. Well, I don't have my wallet. Okay, that's okay, let me just take down your social security, I don't like giving that. And after five, you're supposed to give up. Yeah. But you didn't give up. No, and in fact, you know, I I think if you're going to be a notable celebrity that, you know, instinctually you do that to be loved by people. And Spenny and I are totally different. He won't sign an autograph. Anybody walks up to him, he's like head down, barrels pass him. Uh, any person that sees me, I give them an autograph. I give them a selfie, like whatever the fuck they want. And once I was in the elevator with Julie Andrews on the phone with my mom. And my mom, like Julie Andrews is fucking, you know, you know, Allah to my fucking mom and I go oh Miss Andrews just say hi to my mom she says no 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 I don't do that and I was basically you know what fuck you like why the fuck did you get into the business that you just can't like she's staying in a hotel room next to me like like you know isn't this why you're in the business just for like three seconds just to say hi to, to some 80 year old Jewish lady and make her life complete like fuck you and what did you really say I said I go you know what you're a fucking bitch I did I said fuck you and what did she say she sucked me off. Okay, just checking. Because that's that was her thing. Okay, so I want to go back after the Julie Andrews suck off. Because, again, what I'm trying to point out here, which is I think is important, you have two different philosophies of two different people. If Spenny had been there alone with Neil Simon, they never would have gone to Neil Simon's house. Never. Because Spenny took no for an answer. Instantly. Now, 
instantly. And has no confidence and couldn't believe he could do any of that stuff. In fact, in the movie Pitch, any single time I walk up to a star, like, and there's 50 fucking stars in it, Whoopi and, and, uh, oh my God, Stoltz and, and, and like, I, I, I can't fucking remember, but like, you know, I'm the person that did it, you know? So anytime that we confront a star or get into any office, I get into Arthur Hiller's office. Guy's a president of, you know, motion pictures. And Samuel Z. Arkoff, I got into his fucking office. And so it's all from, and this is something that people don't understand, is the worst thing that can happen with Kenny when he goes up to anybody, the worst thing that can happen when he goes up to Neil Simon is that the same exact thing that happened if he didn't go up to Neil Simon. Yeah, or that my shitty friend's dragging me away and says, don't do this. So so what happened was I was, I you know, Spenny thought, oh, we're going to sell this script in this movie. And I said, it's, fuck it. Like, we got to make a funny movie. So I was cracking all these jokes. And he comes to me and goes, stop cracking jokes. So there's this one, we meet with this big guy. When did Spenny turn into Nixon? Yeah, he's a, he's a fucking idiot. He didn't, it doesn't even get it. Like, let me be me, you fucking idiot. But this is what I don't understand this is something that a lot of creators go through and why they want to work alone is because there's always the perception that one person is more valuable than the other if there's two people selling the brand of Kenny and Spenny and one is walking through Las Vegas casino with their head down not shaking hands don't talk to me and the other one's an ambassador for yeah. the show it's very easy when you get back to your hotel room in Vegas to say, what the fuck? I'm doing all the work here. I'm the one who's the ambassador. This guy sticks his head down. When we try to do something special, he's always saying, let's get out of here. I'm persistent. Why the fuck am I splitting my money 50-50? That was the great thing, that we were totally yin and yangs, and that's the the mastery behind Kenny versus Spenny, is that we're total opposites. Yes, your 50% partners on screen and it's yin and yang but off screen yeah he destroyed he destroyed Kenny versus Spenny because to have a Spenny in your show that's real you have to deal with uh, the off camera stuff and he he he's a bridge burner and he you know when we met Matt and Trey they were mega Kenny versus Spenny fans. Spenny meets him on an airplane coming to Toronto to to promote uh, Team America, probably one of the greatest movies ever made. And just so the audience knows, Matt and Trey, they are probably the most critical people when it comes to any kind of oh, content. God, it, and from my understanding, the only show that they ever endorsed that they love so much was Kenny versus Spenny. Which was so surreal, because you put shit out there, you never know where it's gonna land. But so, Spenny came out that night with us, and he got so fucked up, so wasted, they bounced him out of the restaurant we were in, and they said, don't ever bring him out with us again. But they knew, you know, they, they said to me, we thought you were the fucked up one, but they knew the second they met Spenny that it was real. And, and then they luckily got us on Comedy Central until I fucked that up with testes, but that's a whole other story. Tell me how you decide to do these things with Spencer, because there's a lot of people around you that are funny and unique and doing things, because it seems like you were the leader of men and women, and he was more of a follower kind of person. And so 
I would imagine you were in control and you chose who you wanted to be a partner with. Why did you choose Spencer? I was a filmmaker and he wasn't, but he was the guy. I was a stoner and he used to come over to my house and wake me up in the morning and drag me out of bed and make me shoot stuff. So he originally was the guy who forced me to make movies. He was the hardest working guy that made me, you know, work. But I would edit everything and shoot everything and put everything together and he would just hang back. And But this is what's amazing. With you, he does what you do with Neil Simon. But then in other places where he could really use those skill set that he used with you... He doesn't use them. Doesn't use them. Why? Because when we started doing Kenny versus Spenny, I cut everything, I edited everything, and this is a true story. CBC, Canadian Broadcasting Company, picks up 26 episodes. They've never picked up anything like that. Like, all of a sudden, after doing this movie pitch, I get 26 episodes on the CBC. It's like, what? You know, so... What was the budget per episode? 100,000. 100,000 Canadian. So you got 2.6 million. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a nice little executive well, producer. for two shitty nice kids that, you know, yeah. been, you know, doing nothing. And did they make you hire a production company? Yeah, we we hired a production company. Under the stipulation that, you know, our deal, our deal was like nobody has creative say. Oh, we have creative say and fuck you. We're not doing the deal unless you and we had full creative say. So nobody could even touch our shit. But again, you still got to take me to that point of how it happened. What you started doing that got you to the point. So so we did pitch and and pitch. We went into film festivals and we did the U.S. Comedy Fest. But you in didn't 99. get release forms from anybody. Yeah, we got yeah we got release forms. Yeah, in pitch we got release forms from every celebrity. No, on when we were on the red carpet, you know, and I'm pitching, you know, uh, Matt, whatever the fuck I can't even remember. Like we're pitching all these celebrities. We didn't need a release because they're in a they're on the red carpet. It's you know paparazzi shit. Anyways, the movie came out the day. On, at Toronto, the day Lady Di got killed by paparazzi, and our, we got a whole paparazzi movie, which made us like pariahs anyhow, which kind of helped in the end. But um, um, that movie went to a bunch of festivals all over the world and went to the U.S. Comedy Fest in '99. And um, I was like, Will Smith's friend saw it, and then. Uh, Will Smith's company, Overbrook, sent us to L.A., gave us each 20 Gs and said, Do you want to go sell TV? But we, what happened with Pitch was we went to Dublin and we saw people like – Spenny and I ended up fighting in the movie. Like when it, we couldn't sell our script, we turned on each other and we started fighting. And we're watching these movies all over the world and everybody's laughing when we're fighting. You know, it's like like they loved it. Like people are so fucking sick that they loved us, you know, just turning on each other. And Kenny versus Spenny is really pitch is we sell a script and Kenny versus Spenny is first person to sell the script wins. We just go, you know, we just compete. And that's the simplest little tweak that just really worked. And, you know, so we go out to sell stuff. But there's one little twist at the end. There's a penalty. Yeah. That paid homage to Tom, who's a very close friend of mine. His stuff, he was the new Kaufman. His stuff was revolutionary. We're sitting at home smoking hash, watching SCTV and Tom Green. It was the funniest shit we've ever seen in our lives. Now, did he look at the show and say, they're stealing from me? Uh, hopefully. I bought him enough dinners. 
But it was the genre, you know, Jackass. Tom Green and Derek Harvey, these guys wrote every bit in Jackass, and Jackass stole all of their shit. Nobody knows that. When when Tom Green got fired from from MTV for having testicular cancer, they wrote a book, and every single sketch that they wrote was given to Johnny Knoxville. So when you see Knoxville and Jackass with that baby thing on top of the car and the guy's driving away, Tom Green wrote that. Those guys wrote that. They stole all of their shit, and it started them. You and Tom Green, did you have a good relationship after Kenny and Spenny? Well, yeah, no, I actually met him in 96, and we've been friends ever since. But, yeah, but, you know, the reality was they're, they're... it, it was such. A, it was a little snippet, a, a, a mini vignette at the end of all of our shows, and 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 even though, you know, we never did anything. Tom Green did. Tom Green was, you know, lighting his feet on fire and walking down the street like he was doing the most surreal, absurdist shit. We're we ours was totally different. Ours is I'm making Spenny Bob for apples out of a toilet for like just the the entire, um, you know persona of what we did and what he did were totally different what's the worst thing that you made him do was it the cracker with the pubic hair on oh my god no he's he first of all it was impossible with jackass and tom and all these guys around to think of a humiliation like they did everything it was like oh fuck jackass did it jackass did it jackass did it like to 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 think of 91 humiliations that those guys hadn't done and we they didn't do any of our shit and we didn't do any of their shit um was impossible. That was the hardest thing about Kenny vs. Spenny. What do I make Spenny do? You know, chew my toenails, eat my boogers, like all of that stuff. But I think the worst thing was I scraped the mashed potatoes off of my tongue and I stuck it in his mouth. Why was it like Perry Mason where there can be only one winner? Well, because <laughs> that's the ridiculousness of it. That's the stupidity, the finality, you know, the focus. We've There were some that, some that we did where we both kind of lost, you know, and their crew made us make out and stuff like that, you know. So, so there are some that didn't work, but I think the joy of Kenny versus Spenny is if shit didn't work, we didn't pretend it worked. Like everybody, like we're idiots. So they go, fuck, sorry guys, we totally fucked this up and we move on to the next show. Got it. Okay, do you shoot your own pilot episode together? Yeah, we did, we originally did a pilot for USA Network and it was, who could gain the most weight? Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. So, But it was the same show. It was the same show. And that was your pilot for USA. Yeah. You pitch it to USA. 
and they give you the money for the yeah, pilot? Yeah, they gave us nothing to do it. And then they pulled the plug while we were doing it. But because I was a filmmaker, I managed to finish the pilot. And and then our good friend of ours, John Moranis, who's fucking incredible, made us, um, took the show to CBC. We had palm trees in our pilot, and they had nothing. They had just... They, just, they, they had a Tom Green pilot, like he was huge underground in Canada. They do a pilot for Tom Green. They didn't pick it up. Next day, the guy's on the cover of Rolling Stone. They'll go, fuck. And we just happen to be the next guys in line with a pilot from with palm trees in it from L.A., which is pretty prestigious in Canada. And they're like, uh, 26 shows, you know. So oh, he opened the door for us. We walked through it. One, Uno, dos, two, three, cuatro, five, cinco. Six. six degrees of separation. All right, I want to do the six degrees of separation, if you don't sure. mind. I'm going to mention some names or topics. Yeah. I'd love you to tell me the first thing that comes to mind. Anal sex. Oh, wait, you haven't started yet. That was my first one I was going to say. Okay. Phil Hartman. Um, it's crazy you say that. Paul Hartman, Phil Hartman's brother, just gave me... Uh, hand-painted self-portrait that Phil did when he was 19 years old. I have a picture of it. I'll give it to you. It is fucking unbelievable. He's it's a self-portrait that he did in pencil. It's really big and it's him holding a gun. He saw him just him seeing himself as a kind of secret agent and uh and uh, so I'm friends of the Hartmans. And and I, I'm a total star fucker. I love Hollywood. That's why I went into this because I love Chaplin and I love, you know, Greta Garbo and Liz Taylor and all those shit, like all that shitty shit, like, you know, Lawrence Olivier and Capra. And I, I like, you know, and I, I'm, a, I'm a fucking film guy. So when I see guys like that, that are so fucking great and so cool and make shit look so easy, they're the things that inspired me to do what I do. And it all, to me, goes back to SCTV and SNL and Python and all that stuff. But to me, he was a god. Um, like his brother said, it was a shit fucking sandwich, which happened and uh, disaster, just horrible. But, you know, what can you do? The, the reality is he, he, he made incredible stuff and he was incredibly funny. And, you know, even though he's dead, he left a fucking, you know, a legacy, which is just incredible. Joni Mitchell. Auntie Joan Joan, I feel so bad. She uh, had an aneurysm and, and she's not doing well. Maybe she's better now. But but uh, two weeks before she went into her coma and 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 uh, went to the hospital, I was invited over to their to her house for dinner. And I told my girlfriend, wife, Audrey, I said, can I go to Joni Mitchell's house and just, just for the night, they'll fly to Joni's and go have dinner. And she's like, really? And I said, please. And she's like, oh. and I didn't go. So I feel so fucking bad. And I love her so much. Like she really, you know, talking about being saved and, and being inspired, you know, walking around that place, pictures of her and George. Harrison and like it's it's a it's a fucking museum it's incredible but uh love her to pieces so cool so nice like the nicest fucking lady ever and same with Mantrea the nicest fucking people I hate these douches who end up making it and become fucking assholes you know 
like Chelsea, Chelsea Handler. I was lived, you know, I saw her every day for five fucking years. I go see her at Just for Laughs. She's a total fucking bitch. It's like, fuck you, Chelsea. Like, who else spent their last $5 going to see you with a bitter fucking redhead? Like, fuck off. You know what I mean? Like, turning on your fucking friends that that helped you, you know, and, and you know, helped, you know. Can you come to my show and laugh? Yeah, okay, fine. But it's like, I don't know. It's just, there's there's assholes and there's nice people and I just hate the fucking assholes and I don't have time for it anymore. You know? I have to sit and watch Oprah's Life class every fucking day because I got a baby now. And But that shit's like, you know what? There's a lot of fucking good in it. You know? Be a good person. Don't be a fucking dick. And, uh, you know, it's light versus dark. That's, I, that's I'm just trying to live in the now and, and be a good person and be happy. And look, shit comes back to you. Look, now I'm sitting with you, which is an honor and I'm invited by, I get a free $1,600 pass for JFL because they like me. It's like, that's the shit that happens. Spenny's doing triple X shitty bingo for $5 in Windsor because he's a fucking dick. That's, that's what happens to you. You know, it's karma. Not that I believe in any of that shit, but there is some truth to, you know, the right path. I believe in karma. Speaking of karma, your dad... Oh, greatest, sweetest guy, but worst, worst businessman ever. He, he'd, he'd do it like a business deal and go, okay, Jack, we owe you 60 grand sign here. And he said, a handshake's good enough for me. And then they wouldn't pay him the 60 grand. But uh, seeing him, this is why I'm me seeing my father get douched by everybody because he was the nicest guy in the world turned me to a diabolical fucking bastard that ended up making me a star on Kenny versus Spenny. So I, I'm the antithesis of what my father's personality was. He, I, I didn't want to live my life and get douched by fucking assholes. So I just, you know, got street smart and figured it out, you know? So I, I do what my dad didn't do. Kanye West and Drake. Um, I'm love rap. I saw Grandmaster Flash in 1982. I've always been into uh, black culture. We have the same penis. Um, I like those guys. I own a bar, a club, and a restaurant. Kanye and Drake ended up playing the club, which is nice. But my shitty fucking partners didn't even tell me they were playing. Like somebody called, somebody texted me, oh, uh, Kanye's playing your club. Like, fuck off. Like, I wasn't even there. I've been there a couple of the Squillaxes played there like two, three times. I, shit's a zoo. But that's the other thing. I made a conscious decision. Am I going to go to my club, ram 18-year-old Kenny versus Benny fans, do bumps, and just be a fucking scummy sleazeball? Or am I going to be with uh, the most incredible girl who loves me, makes me brush my teeth, and totally takes care of me? Am I going to be, you know gross or I'm going to live for an extra 20 years. I made a conscious decision. You know what? I'm going to be with someone that loves me, uh, try to raise a family and be a good person. That's it. So everybody thinks, sees me as a scumbag from Kenny versus Spenny. But the reality is I'm the good guy. In Kenny versus Spenny, I'm happy. I love myself. I'm, I'm you know, I, I love life. And I don't give a shit about the stupid bureaucracy and red tape. Spenny's the, Spenny's the asshole. He really is the asshole. He's violent. He, anytime anybody hits anybody, it's, it's him hitting me. He's angry. He's, he's, he hates himself. He's, he's, you know, he's an introvert. I'm an extrovert. That, it, it, to me, Kenny versus Spenny is good versus bad. It, it, it encompasses all of those, you know, all of those ideas. Let's pretend that 
nobody knows how you guys are personally. Yeah. Let's pretend that nobody knows you're the ambassador who's always shaking hands and smiling. Yeah. And let's pretend that nobody knows that Spenny yeah. puts his head down. Let's pretend that I tell both of you to go to the Paris Hotel and Casino, and I want you to start at one end of the casino, one of you start at one end, one of you start at the other, and I want you both to be like cordial and nice and just walk straight at a certain pace. Who's going to get to the other side fastest, meaning who's not going to be stopped the most and who's going to be stopped the most? Well, Spenny's going to, you want to know the 20 G's that Will Smith gave us? Spenny spent 18 grand in Vegas the second he got it, lost it at a casino. Eugene Levy told me, you get to L.A., don't buy a car, don't buy anything. Shop at dollar stores, save every fucking penny you can. And to me, he's John Lennon, Eugene Levy. It's like, oh my God, you're a god. And I listened to him and I saved every fucking penny I had and Spenny lost every cent. I guess what I'm alluding to is which one of you would you say unbiasedly for the people who don't know you personally, either would, one, which one of you is the most popular character? I'm way more popular than Spenny. Uh, he works out first on stage, and and well, I do a thing. I shouldn't say it because it blow the, my load. But I have the announcer say, uh, there's a problem. Kenny couldn't make it tonight. He's stuck in the uh, Jer Jersey airport, and everyone just goes, boo. Spenny walks out, and then they walk out, and they all cheer. You know what I mean? Just to douche the audience a little bit before I come out. Got it. Yeah. No, listen, I have 300,000 Twitter fans. He has got like 13,000. I, I built our empire from day one. I was on ICQ and IMDB, and, and I built our audience. I've been doing that. He never did any of that stuff. LSD. We used to do a lot of acid. We First time I ever did acid, I was 14 years old, maybe even 13, and my, my fat uncle died, my morbidly obese uncle died, and I did acid for his funeral. It was a fucking trip. And we did a lot of acid. And people think I'm an asshole for giving Spenny acid, but only mega fans know this, that Spenny slipped me acid when I was in grade nine and me and all my friends acid. So it took me 20 years to get the guy back. I did it on national television, but I'm not a fucking scumbag. It's like, fuck you, it's, it's revenge. And uh, in the end he was like, oh my God, that was a great show, so. And I really gave him acid. I hate that people think your show's fake. You can't do drugs on TV. It's like, I don't know. You ever seen an intervention where guys are ramming heroin into their cocks? Yeah, you can do fucking drugs. Fuck off. Like, Marlon Brando couldn't act like that. Like, he was on acid. What's interesting is in these shows, you glorified acid. No, no. He ends up sh dancing around and shitting his pants. Nobody watches that show is going to want to do SIDS. But you didn't know he was going to do that. Well, most people do that on when they're whacked on fucking microdots. Yeah. Most people drop a load. <laughs> Acid is the worst. I, it is the craziest fucking drug. I think people should do it. What's the worst thing that ever happened to you or one of your friends when you were on acid? Once I was on acid. It's one of the last time. Oh, first of all, I'm on acid with my friends. My, friends jump, my friend jumps off of a bridge. Total after school special. Jumps off of a bridge, spends six months in the hospital, loses half of his face, 13 teeth, like ended up dying a few years ago from the injuries that he had when we were 14 years old. So I, I went out with my friends one night, did acid. My friend jumped off a massive bridge and like 
almost killed him. His dad made funeral arrangements that night. It was a fucking nightmare. My worst trip was once I was on acid. I was really high, and we were under. We were at the back staircase of an apartment building because you can't really go anywhere on acid. We're kids, and I, I was getting so fucking high that I lied down next to a fence, right against the fence. And all of a sudden, this paper bag bag blew against the fence, and I screamed like ah, and it broke my fucking brain. It was the one of the worst experiences. Being surprised on acid, and that's one of, one of the reasons why I scared spending in the show. Because to me, that was the worst trip that I ever had. Just a paper bag blowing against a fence and scaring the living fucking shit out of me. Wow. True story. South Park, Matt and Trey. Uh, geniuses, I, you know, I sat there, I didn't do anything. I got maybe one Jew joke in. They you're, fired, talking they about fired when, me. you're talking about when you were hired as a yeah. writer on the show. Yeah. How many seasons in were you hired as a writer? Season nine. Nine. Yeah. And you just sat there and did nothing? Nobody does anything. Those guys sit there, they write everything themselves. So why do they hire people? They like sitting with their friends and they, they're, they're, they are the nicest, sweetest fucking guys in the world. Like do they I, tell you that before you go in? Listen, we're going to hire you. going to make some money. No, I didn't, sit here I didn't and watch work us. for me. I was a, like I said, I was a bumblebee in a jar and I'm sitting there trying to get in all these jokes. And I, what I didn't understand is they just want to get the show done as great as they, as, as great as possible. They need to get the show done. And I was like, okay, season nine's when Kenny Hotz comes in and everybody's going to know, oh, the show. But no, they, they want to put the show in the can. They did five million episodes. So it's get her done, get her done, get her done. Not quick, like just to make the best show they possibly can. Your proudest moment in show business. Uh, wow. There's been a, there's really been a lot. I think when I did Triumph for the Will and I did the first episode where I tried to get my mom laid and I realized, wow, this is an evolution of like, I was so scared that I would lose my audience or I couldn't do anything that, that my fans would like. Cause I love my fans. I really do stuff to, to, you know, make them laugh. But when the ending of the first episode like clicked and I went, Oh my God, this is way better than Kenny versus Penny ever could be. And to me, the show I, the last show I did, Triumph for the Will, is my my greatest moment in history. And to, 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 you know, I'm doing who can stand up the longest and who can live with a shit in their pants. And now I'm doing, can I find my mother love? It was, it's like the Beatles. It's like, it's all about love. Like to me, I know it sounds cheesy and shit, but these are big fucking issues and shit. You know, I thought it was a kind of, to me, a new genre that I kind of created and it felt really, really good. Hey everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. I want to talk to you about an amazing documentary that I worked on a few years back called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I ever did in my life. It centered on a man who'd been in prison for 30 years. He was the only person in history to have admitted to killing Kennedy, and his story is unbelievable. He started as a runner for the mob. He was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas, and he ended up being the guy who calibrated their weapons. And he was there that day with one of his own and took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy on the grassy knoll. 
His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere else except on this documentary. So go to barrycats.com to the merch page and buy the documentary with the rare interviews of the five greatest historical experts in the world, many of which you'll hear on the next three weeks of podcasts. So just go to barrycats.com, the merch page, pick up the documentary and interviews, and I guarantee it will reverse the way you feel about what happened that day in 1963 and change your opinion of the government and how it works and alter the way you think about things forever. Lastly, I want to talk to you about something really impactful and involves something really close to my heart, self-education. You see, throughout my life, I realized that every success I've ever achieved in my career has come from the education I received from my experiences in the business. And I truly believe that we all have the knowledge inside of us that others would kill for. And by sharing that, we can open up an entirely new world of possibilities for ourselves. That's why I'm so excited to tell you that I partnered up with my friend Tony Robbins, who's been number one in this field for 40 years. Along with his team of experts, Dean Graziosi and Russell Brunson, they'll show you how to take that valuable knowledge in your mind and turn it into an incredibly profitable mastermind workshop or event, just like they have and continue to do in their careers. And they're launching a new training program that's literally changing people's lives by helping people like you be a part of this $129 billion a year business. So it's an incredible opportunity for someone like yourself to build your own business, share your knowledge, and help and serve people in a huge way with the guidance of Tony Robbins, the best in the business. He's actually going to teach people like you how to make big money and build a successful business. So if you're ready to take your life to the next level, they're doing a free live training session today at barrykbb.com. That's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com. Look, I've done over 440 free podcast episodes of Industry Standard. And because of your incredible response, it's reinforced my belief that we're morally obligated to share and pass on our knowledge with the world and help other people in those ways. I truly believe this. And I really love this groundbreaking training program and how it can turn your knowledge into an extraordinary amount of money. So just go to barrykbb.com, that's B-A-R-R-Y-K-B-B.com, to this free training session with the best in the business, Tony Robbins. I guarantee you, it will change your life forever. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money Drop that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down 
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.